This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome once more to the program. For a bit of fun, today we're going to start with a folktale from the Alaska Tlingit Indian people that has a surprisingly Buddhist twist to it. Well, it may not be so surprising, as the traditionally pre-Western Tlingit held beliefs quite similar to Buddhism, especially with respect to rebirth. Dr. Eva Ian Stevenson, much of whose working life was devoted to investigating the possibility of reincarnation, surmised that the Tlingit conviction about rebirth came from early contacts with Buddhism. In his book, 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation, he investigated seven cases from the Tlingit. But aside from all that, here's the tale. It's called How Selfishness Was Rewarded and is retold by S.E. Schlosser. A young warrior came to the coast with his wife and mother one summer and settled in the place where Sitka now stands. It was a summer of hardship for the family because the fish stayed away from the coast and the game had moved far away over the mountains. The warrior set traps and laid nets in the water and wandered many miles hunting for food but found nothing. The family had to eat berries and green sprouts and dig for roots to eat. Even so, there was barely enough each day to keep the family going. The old mother, who was nearly blind, began to lose health and strength as the days went by with little food. In sharp contrast to this was the pretty young wife, who stayed strong and healthy and just picked at her meal each evening. This puzzled the young warrior, who felt himself losing his vigour as the days went by, but he could find no reason for her good health in this time of adversity. Then his old mother came to her son very early one morning and told him a sad and cruel story. The old mother had wakened the night before from a dream of cooked fish to smell the reality in the air. She opened her old eyes and saw a fish roasting on a small flickering fire. The starving old mother saw her son's wife crouched near the fire and she heard the girl eagerly chewing the hot fish. The old mother cried out to her son's wife to give her a morsel, but the girl was selfish and told the old woman that the fish she smelled was just a dream. When the old mother begged for just a single bite of fish, the girl denied her request. The old woman kept up her cries until the selfish girl took the bare bones from the last fish and thrust them into the old woman's hands, burning her flesh. Then the old mother wept bitter tears and retreated back to her corner. When he heard his mother's story, the warrior cautioned her to say nothing to his wife. When the selfish girl awoke, the warrior treated her in his customary manner, but he kept watch to see what she would do. That night, when she thought everyone lay sleeping, 
the young wife crept down to the shore and summoned a school of herring to the shore using a magic spell. She swept two of the largest fish into her basket and took them back to the lodge to cook. Unbeknownst to her, the warrior had followed his wife. He took care to memorize the strange words of his wife's spell and then slipped quickly back to the lodge and into his blankets before she returned. He lay so still that the girl never suspected that he was watching as she cooked and ate the fish, carefully burying the bones so that her family would not know what she had done. In the morning, the warrior went out hunting and caught a fat seal. That evening, the whole family feasted on the rich meat, and soon the selfish young wife lay fast asleep in the lodge. At midnight, the young warrior rose and went to the shore. Using his wife's spell, he summoned the herring and filled a basket with the largest of the fish. When the girl woke in the morning, she saw her husband and his mother eating roast fish beside a crackling fire. The old mother savoured each mouthful and kept darting triumphant looks at the selfish young girl. Then the young wife knew that her shameful behaviour had been discovered. After greeting her husband pleasantly, the young girl left the lodge and walked casually towards the woods. As soon as she was out of sight, she took to her heels, running as fast as she could towards the mountains, fearful of her husband's wrath. She heard the warrior call her name and heard him running after her. She flung herself up the mountainside, clambering up a large boulder that stood in her way. As the girl climbed, she felt her body growing smaller and smaller. She gasped in fear as she realized that the magic she had used so selfishly was turning against her in punishment for the crimes she had committed against her starving family. She felt feathers sprouting from her arms and face, and when she cried out, the only sound she could make was a soft hooting noise. By the time the young warrior reached the boulder, the girl's transformation was complete. He found himself face to face with a small owl that gazed up at him with his wife's large pleading eyes. He reached out to her, not knowing what to do or say. The owl backed away from his hand, and he saw the humanity fading from its eyes. The owl shook itself, stretched its wings, and flew away into the forest, hooting plaintively. The warrior gazed after his transformed wife sadly. He had planned to treat her gently, to woo her away from her selfishness with his love and his kindness. But the evil forces she had used so selfishly had taken her, and there was nothing he could do but return to his lodge and tell his old mother what had happened. To this day, the plaintive hoot of the owl may be heard in the wilds of Alaska, reminding those who hear it of the price a young girl once paid for her selfishness. Now, of course, the reason I'm telling this story is because in our previous programs, as we looked over developing the mind wishing to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, that's the mind of a bodhicitta, we'd come to the section on seeing the disadvantages of being self-centered. Now, this may be a fable, but the story of the selfish wife kind of puts a cap on that. It suggests that when we act self-centeredly, sooner or later our selfishness will catch up with us and we will turn into owls or something worse. Thus we've come to the end of considering the disadvantages of self-centeredness, and we're going to now look at the advantages of cherishing others. But before we do that, I had a thought about the William Bishop blog post about depression and self-centeredness, 
that I extensively quoted last week. New Zealand listeners might have wondered why I concentrated on an American perspective so much, but it occurred to me that New Zealanders' do-it-yourself spirit of independence taken to extremes, mixed with a kind of stoicism regarding emotions, especially among men, might equally lead to states of depression. Such attitudes might well have something to do with why New Zealand has the highest rate of suicide in the world among young men. Also, over the years, we seem to have accepted more and more the American value system, so we'd better know where it might lead. Whether I'm right or not, you will have to decide, but certainly William Bishop made a compelling case for swapping the self-centered attitude euphemistically disguised by the words freedom and independence for a more community-orientated focus. And from a Buddhist point of view, that works whether you're an American, a New Zealander, a Tlingit, or any other kind of human being you might like to imagine. Now, before going any further, let's set our motivation as usual, encouraging the strongest community-minded attitude possible, that's bodhicitta. In other words, may this program become the cause for us to attain enlightenment, for the benefit both temporary and ultimate of all living beings. But if you can't go that far, please think of your own liberation from samsara. Thank you. We now get to the benefits of cherishing others, and I'm going to introduce this with another story. This is one from the book The Power of Compassion, Stories That Open the Heart, Heal the Soul, and Change the World. The story is about a Tibetan Lama by the name of Lama Shempen Rinpoche, who was a healer, and is told by another Tibetan monk, Venerable Tutan Lodron, who I should imagine is one of his students. Please watch your mind as this story unfolds, and take note of what state it is in at the end. Tupton Lodro writes, I would like to tell you about a young child named Tony, whom Shempen Rinpoche helped. He was from Russia and was very sick, having been stricken with a rare treatment-resistant form of leukemia. Lama Shempen heard about this child via the internet when someone asked him to pray for him, as he is known to be a healer. Lama engaged himself immediately and made plans to go see Tony in Germany, where he was living with his mother. After a few days, Lama decided to reorganize his schedule and radically changed his center on the island of Paros in Greece, where he was living, in order to welcome the child and give him a calmer environment for healing. All the Dharma students there were very moved by how Lamala was taking care of the child and how the child was considering him as his father. He raised funds for the child and immediately asked for prayers and pujas around the world. Tony was a very sensitive child, but he was also very nervous and hyperactive, close to being aggressive. Being with him was not easy, because he could take all your time, attention and energy. But it was amazing how soon, after being with Lama Shempen, then Tony became quieter and less anxious. He began thinking about how to help those around him. Even though Tony was only nine years old, he understood that the monk he considered as his father, his best friend and his teacher, would remain close to him, no matter what happened to him. When a relapse was diagnosed, Lamala went with Tony to Berlin and spent seven days and six nights a week with him, living in the hospital. At each operation Tony had to go through, Lama Shempen stayed close to him. 
when they gave him anesthesia and again when he was waking up. Tony decided to become Buddhist and he was given the name Tupton Norbu, but we all called him Tony Norbu, and Norbu means precious gem. Inspired by the love and care Lama Shempen showed him, he also wanted to become a monk and began asking for teachings from his hospital bed in order to teach and help others later on. Nine months after he met Lama Shempen, Tony Norbu passed away with his Lama at his side. Those of us who were involved will never forget Tony, who is truly an exceptional child. For me, the most moving part of the story was to see how one person, with the right attitude at the right moment, could inspire so much positivity in others through prayer, discussions and self-engagement and thus change the minds of so many. That was especially true of this young child who, despite his own illness and suffering, was praying for the other sick children in the hospital at the time he was dying. It makes me deeply feel and appreciate how vast the mind truly is and how precious all those beings are who are there only to benefit others. And that is where the story ends. Now how has your mind changed from before it started? In her commentary on contemplating the advantages of cherishing others, Tupton Children first talks about the effects of karma. Cherishing others, she points out, is the source of all positive motivations. And she goes on, Positive motivations are the source of all positive karma, and positive karma is the cause of all happiness. So, if we want to be happy, we need to engage in positive actions. Positive actions are either stopping the negative ones or doing the opposite of the negative ones. Both of those are considered positive actions. What is the motivation for creating positive actions? It is the view that cherishes others. When we cherish others, we don't speak harsh words to them. When we cherish them, we don't cheat on them in our sexual relationships. When we cherish them, we don't covet their stuff. We don't spend a long time building ill will and maliciousness against them. When we cherish others, it is the source of all the positive actions that we do. And, of course, we reap the results of our positive actions. In addition, the other people reap the results of our positive actions. Because when we cherish others, we do things that benefit them and they are happy. Cherishing others is the source of happiness in the whole world because it creates happiness for them and it creates happiness for us. Cherishing others is the source of a peaceful society. It's the source of a peaceful planet. When we cherish others, we stop harming them. We start caring for them. And that's the cause of peace. We don't create peace by dropping bombs, whether it's physical bombs or verbal bombs. The Buddha was very clear, and we can see from our own lives, that hatred and hostility don't cease by creating more hatred and hostility. They only cease by cherishing others. If we care about peace in the world, we cherish others. Now before we go on, let's just clarify again what we mean when we say cherishing others. In his text, The Great Treatise on the Stages of the Path, Lama Tsongkhapa himself says that normally we make a distinction between ourselves and others in the same way as we make a distinction between the colors blue and yellow. In learning to cherish others, we have to transform this categorical distinction so that when we are aware of ourself, we are aware of others. And when we are aware of others, we are aware of ourself. 
It's like being aware of near mountains and distant mountains, Lama Tsongkhapa writes. Relative to you being here, you think of a mountain there in the distance as being a distant mountain. Yet when you go to this distant mountain, you think of it as a near mountain. So the awareness of self and other is not like the awareness of color, for regardless of what color blue is related to, you are aware of just blue and not aware of some other color. Now this, you may remember, harks back to what we said last week about changing the reference to I as meaning me to meaning others. Then, returning to the benefits of cherishing others, Tupton Chodron cautions that this does not mean giving in to everything others ask of us. Often when I talk about cherishing others, people bring up the objection that doing so just allows them to walk all over you. But this is a complete misunderstanding of what it means to cherish others. Cherishing others does not necessarily mean that you give in to everything that they want. You have to employ some wisdom here. For instance, say your child comes to you and says she wants to start smoking and please will you buy her a packet of cigarettes. Do you immediately rush off to the nearest dairy to get her what she wants? I hope not. Doing that would not be cherishing her. It would be doing exactly the opposite. Cherishing others means having their long-term well-being at heart in the same way that you have your own long-term happiness at heart. As Tupton Children points out, we can cherish others and still have very clear boundaries. It doesn't mean that we do everything everybody wants. Oh, I cherish you and you are asking me to do a shady business deal, so in order to be kind to you, I'll do the shady business deal with you. That, she says, is not cherishing others. It's just stupidity. She goes on, People talk about boundaries and having appropriate boundaries. Cherishing others doesn't mean we just become doormats and do anything every, anybody suggests. In fact, cherishing them often means doing things that they don't like, as you know from when you discipline your child. You have to discipline your children. Otherwise, you're going to wind up with monsters instead of children. So, you discipline your kids out of kindness because you cherish them. You want them to be able to function in society, and you know that if you give them everything they want, they're not going to be able to function very well in society. You also know it's impossible to give them everything they want. Cherishing others has a very deep impl implication, because it means doing for others what is going to be better for them in the long run. It does not mean satisfying their temporary pleasures. You don't give somebody who's an alcoholic more alcohol, saying... I cherish you and I want you to be happy. Often when we cherish people, they may at the beginning react against us. Kids don't like to be disciplined and people don't like to be told no, that they can't fulfill all their negative habits. But when we do that out of kindness for them, that's what actually helps them. It's what benefits them. It's the intention, it's the heartfelt thing to cherish others. It does not mean that we are the do-gooder who's going to win the next popularity contest. It is really coming from the attitude that cares for their long-term benefit. If we care, if we really cherish others, we're not going to ask them to tell little white lies on our behalf. If we really cherish others, we're not going to ask them to get involved in our disputes and conflicts. If we really cherish others, we're not going to hook them into all of our crazy trips and games. And if we really cherish them, we're not going to insist on always being right. She points out that being right is a big thing for us. She continues, 
I want to be right and I want you to know that I'm right and I'm going to keep fighting until you acknowledge that I'm right. It's not enough that you just back down. You have to actively acknowledge that I was right the whole time. We push and we push and create all sorts of bad feelings, don't we? One of my students was telling me that she and her partner were having some disputes, so they went to counseling together, and her partner just kept on going. She does this and she does that. The therapist finally looked at him and said, Do you want to be right or do you want to be close to her? Tipton Children makes a very valid point that when we insist on being right, we often push the people who mean the most to us away from us. Sometimes we just have to give up planting our flag on the moon, she says. It is really not so important that it is our flag on the moon. Judith E. Glasser, the CEO of Benchmark Communications, chairperson of the Creating We Institute and the author of six books, is also a consultant to Fortune 500 companies. She makes an interesting point about the chemical processes in the brain that compel us to prove we are right. She writes about business executives, but I guess we can interpolate what she says for any situation. Here is what she says. I'm sure it's happened to you. You're in a tense team meeting trying to defend your position on a big project and start to feel yourself losing ground. Your voice gets louder. You talk over one of your colleagues and correct his point of view. He pushes back, so you go into overdrive to convince everyone you're right. It feels like an out-of-body experience, and in many ways it is. In terms of such neurochemistry, your brain has been hijacked. In situations of high stress, fear or distrust, the hormone and neurotransmitter cortisol floods the brain. Executive functions that help us with advanced thought processes like strategy, trust building and compassion shut down. And the amygdala, our instinctive brain, takes over. The body makes a chemical choice about how to pr- best to protect itself. In this case, from the shame and loss of power associated with being wrong. And as a result, is unable to regulate its emotions or handle the gaps between expectations and reality. So, we default to one of four responses. Fight, let's keep arguing the point. Flight, revert to and hide behind group's consensus. Freeze, that's disengage from the argument by shutting up. Or appease, that's make nice with your adversary by simply agreeing with him. All are harmful because they prevent the honest and productive sharing of information and opinion. But as a consultant who has spent decades working with executives on their communication skills, I can tell you that the fight response is by far the most damaging to work relationships. It is also, unfortunately, the most common. That's partly due to another neurochemical process. When you argue and win, your brain floods with different hormones, adrenaline and dopamine, which makes you feel good, dominant, even invisible. It's the feeling any of us would want to replicate. So the next time we're in a tense situation, we fight again. We get addicted to being right. I've coached dozens of incredibly successful leaders who suffer from this addiction. They're extremely good at fighting for their point of view, which is indeed often right. Yet they are completely unaware of the dampening impact their behavior has on the people around them. If one person is getting high off his or her dominance, others are being drummed into submission 
experiencing the fight, flight, freeze or appease response I described before, which diminishes their collaborative impulses. Luckily, there's another hormone that can feel just as good as adrenaline, oxytocin. It's activated by human connection and it opens up the networks in our executive brain or prefrontal cortex, further increasing our ability to trust and open ourselves to sharing. Your goal as a leader should be to spur the production of oxytocin in yourself and others while avoiding, at least in the context of communication, those spikes of cortisol and adrenaline. She goes on to suggest some ways to counteract our and others' addiction to being right. First of all, set the rules of engagement. Have everyone suggest ways to make it a productive, inclusive conversation and write the ideas down for everyone to see. For example, you might agree to give people extra time to explain their ideas and to listen without judgment. These practices will counteract the tendency to fall into harmful conversational patterns. Afterwards, consider how you and the group did and seek to do even better next time. Then, she says, listen with empathy. In one-on-one conversations, make a conscious effort to speak less and listen more. The more you learn about other people's perspectives, the more likely you are to feel empathy for them. And when you do that for others, they'll want to do it for you, creating a virtuous circle. And third, plan who speaks. In other words, when you know someone is likely to dominate the conversation, create opportunities for everyone to speak. Ask everyone to identify who has important information, perspectives or ideas. Ask open-ended questions and take notes. Connecting and bonding with others trumps conflict, she writes. I've found that even the best fighters, the proverbial smartest guys in the room, can break their addiction to being right by getting hooked on oxytocin-inducing behavior instead. I found one of the comments to her article very illuminating. It comes from someone who identifies himself as Len Cavallaro, and he says, when the discussion becomes a test of wills, the objective becomes winning rather than solving the problem. When tackling a complex problem, I've learned it's best to agree on a set of guiding principles. These guiding principles establish the objectives that will justify the resources spent. As long as we solve for the guiding principles, I've learned that the more the solutions came from the people charged with executing the work, the better the final outcome. I learned to become addicted to good outcomes rather than being right. There's also a trust issue. When only your idea will do, you're implying that you don't trust the thinking skills of your team members. Years ago, I opposed an idea that had gained popularity among my peers and bosses in the sales department. I truly believed that I'd analyzed the issue correctly and was dead certain I was right. I became the chief obstructionist of this idea and the debate dragged on for months. One day, after spending the entire morning arguing and obstructing in a meeting, I had an epiphany. I finally realized that what I was doing was not productive. If I was right and the idea was fundamentally flawed, then it would fail in the implementation. On the other hand, if it had at least some redeeming elements, then as a team we would make it work. After lunch, I apologized to the team and told them that since the overwhelming majority supported the idea, I owed it to the team to support it and help to make it work. An amazing thing happened. The discussion stopped being about my opposition and for the first time became about how it would work in real life. Within two hours with me saying nary a word, 
the idea was tabled due to the practical obstacles. I understood then that I had succeeded only in delaying the outcome I was seeking. Had I trusted the team, we would have gotten to the meet sooner instead of it being me imposing my will. And with that, time is up. Thanks for joining the program today and please dedicate the positive potential as we usually do to the enlightenment of all beings. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.